Thank you, and good evening, everybody. Um, and we are certainly glad to have uh, you back, Yoshi, and you, Mary. And um, I'm hopeful that you had a very good rest and a nice time away uh, and gathering up your energies. And we're certainly glad that you're back. So uh, to lead us here to the Zendo. Um, so I have a talk for you all tonight. Um, this one is about wisdom. Um, so my my prompt for you, you can put this in your in your head, is um, uh, is that I, I am curious about how wisdom shows up for you all, and I uh, thought that maybe we could share a little bit about that. Um, so my my remarks tonight are more ruminations on uh, on this topic for our little you know adventures in wisdom here. So um, I'll give it a go and and see what happens. Um, um, <clears throat> so uh, when I first came to practice with the Sangha, uh, Mary and Yoshi led us in the chant of the Sutra, just like we did tonight. And I had never heard it before, uh, before that time. And I was initially confused by the concept of emptiness and the virtues of it expressed in the um, sutra of no form, no feelings, no perceptions, and so forth. Um, it was really kind of puzzling to me as a, as a newcomer. At the end of the, of the sutra, we chant uh, in unison, just like we did tonight, all Buddhas and directions, the three worlds, all venerable ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, and I gravitated to that concept of wisdom beyond wisdom, and like a pebble hitting bamboo, it was a bit of an awakening for me. Uh, the notion that wisdom is all right here, available and accessible, is great. But to discover that there is wisdom beyond wisdom <laughs> is magnificent. <laughs> The way-seeking mind has a vast playground to explore, and wisdom beyond wisdom implies an infinite and abundant source of prajna, awakening, and enlightenment at the ready. Uh, it's the consistent practice of zazen that opens it all up. In Shobo Genzo, and in the virtue of home-leading fascicle, Dogen writes, the study of realizing wisdom beyond wisdom spoken here is transmitted from one ancestor to another. So as we engage deeply in our practice, we really owe it to the ancestors for keeping it all alive and continually extending an invitation to practice and explore. Ancestors, thank you. <laughs> I can't help but think about my own ancestors, uh, my biological ones. Now, I am from a family that came to this land a long time ago. And as early settlers, they eventually amassed the kind of wealth and privilege that provided them time to reflect and keep track of themselves and prepare family trees for future generations to know their names. They wanted us to know something about our biological stories. I've seen the list of names that sound so antiquated now, like Hebzibah and Ezekiel and Boaz. Uh, there's also a whole bunch of Johns and Henrys and Elizabeths uh, on the list, too. Um, 
And many of the families were really quite large, like 10 to 12 children uh, were not uncommon. And in some of the large families, <laughs> children um, would die young. And the next one that came took the name of the one that had most recently passed. So there's a record of all of those people and they are my ancestors. Yet I don't know who they really are, uh, who they really were as people, you know, my grandparents who I, who I knew and, and loved. Were they benevolent souls? <clears throat> were they oppressors or racists? Were they greedy, were they generous? Were they funny and lighthearted? How did they suffer? To what extent were they awakened? Did any of them have any, uh, have a way seeking mind if they would even call it that? I doubt that any of them were Buddhists, but maybe lurking about in the list of names, there was a Bodhisattva among them in some form. So it's curious to me. I wonder what traits, use of language, morals, et cetera, that I understand in my family can be traced back to the ancestors and how far back. I imagine that it's a mixed bag. Amongst all those names, there were certainly wonderful people and likely there was an equal mix of dry turds. <laughs> and that's the technical Buddhist term <laughs> as we've learned here in the Sangha. <laughs> In 2020, I was invited to study the precepts and ultimately received the Bodhisattva precepts in a, in a lovely ceremony at uh, 30 North Michigan Avenue. Yeah, you know, she gave me my, my Buddha name and inscribed my Rakasu. He also gave me lineage papers. <laughs> and on the cover of those papers, it says, the lineage of Buddha's ancestors by whom the Bodhisattva's great precepts are correctly given. Inside, the lineage is represented by a red line, starting with Shakyamuni Buddha, flowing through each Buddha ancestor and teacher, working its way down to Miyoshi, and then to me. And it ends with a note from Miyoshi, who wrote, The Buddha's precepts are the great matter of one's birth and death. They have been directly transmitted to me through successive Buddhas and ancestors. I, now transmit them unto you so that you may abide by them faithfully. It's an amazing document, and I, I still can't believe how fortunate I am to have it and to have been invited to this practice in the Sangha. So I have two kinds of ancestors, my biological ancestors and my Buddha ancestors. My biological ancestors are likely a hodgepodge of people and thoughts and traditions and customs there's likely variance in my Buddha ancestors too, but there's also consistency of practice, sazen, bodhicitta, ceremony, awakening, enlightenment, living the bodhisattva vows, passed from one to the next. As I have been mulling all this over, uh, these two sets of ancestors, I start to think, is that all? The record of ancestry is human the names of people that existed in the same form, same physical form that we do, but our human ancestors were impacted by many other forms of life. I cannot help but think about the plethora of beings in the natural world that also experience life and are tapped into wisdom as we humans, uh, that we humans cannot detect, but it's certainly there. How could it not be? There, this is an interesting take on wisdom beyond wisdom. 
We don't inhabit the earth alone, and we owe our existence to so many species and forms of life that make our lives possible for better or worse. Our wisdom is inevitably the wisdom of all beings. But our ability to perceive the world and access that wisdom is constrained by our senses, the tools and receptors that we use to experience life and make conclusions about what it is. Ed Young wrote the New York Times bestseller, An Immense World, that examines how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us. The book introduced me to the term Umwelt from the German word for environment. The zoologist Jakob uh, von Utskol, pardon my pronunciation, <laughs> uh, working in the early 20th century, used the term to describe the surroundings that an animal can sense and experience its perceptual world. We are limited by our umwelt, and as it turns out, there are many ways that animals can sense and navigate the world that are vastly different from our own and completely off limits to us. Blue whales and Asian elephant, elephants, for instance, can communicate over long distances with low-pitched infrasonic calls. In quieter eras, Ed Yang writes, the whale's call could carry across oceans. The greater, uh, the greater wax moth hears higher frequencies than any other known animal. Dolphins can use their sonar to find buried objects coordinate formations and distinct, distinguish fish by the shape of their air-filled gas bladders. The black ghost knifefish, the electric eel, the glass knife fish, the Ubangi elephant fish, all produce their own electric fields which they use to sense the world around them. And the list goes on. It's also magical and varied. I wonder how different the experience of this life is as, at its essence for those species than it is for us. I wonder about the wisdom detectable through those different forms of umbilt and the wisdom beyond that that they have access to. Is it all the same? It does seem to me that our experience of life need not be limited by our own umbilt. After all, we live interdependently with all beings. We surely have the benefit of many avenues into life experience and the wisdom they reveal. This world, the truth of it, and the wisdom of it lie beyond what our human senses can readily perceive. Surely Dogen knew this. How else would he have written the Mountains and Waters Sutra to tell us about mountains walking? On a planet with such diversity of life and methods of receiving ancient wisdom, it's such a tragedy that we humans facilitate the extinction of so many life forms. It's an arrogant human move that ends the ancestral transmission of wisdom for those species, forever lost, and thus narrowing and limiting the richness of life itself and our experience of it. To this point, Shokaku Akimura has a good line in his commentary on the Mountains and Water Sutra. To see the true nature of all beings means we live together with all beings. When we don't see this, we kill part of this network of interdependent origination. In the context of wisdom, we talk about ancestors, lineage, transmission from past to present. 
Yet I find myself curious about the wisdom of the future and our ability to receive it as well. The Buddhist, the Buddhist environmental activist and scholar Joanne Macy opened my mind to that concept. The last chapter of her book, World is Lover, World of Self, is titled In Lead with the Beings of the Future. She writes, the beings of the future and their claim on life have come to seem so real to me that I sense them hovering like a cloud of witnesses. Sometimes I fancy that if I were to turn my head suddenly, I would glimpse them over my shoulder. Philosophers and mystics say that chronological time is a construct, a function of our mentality. There's also, they say, a dimension in which all time is simultaneous where we coexist with past and future. Perhaps because I am so time-ridden, hurrying to meet this deadline and that appointment, I'm drawn to that notion. The dimension of simultaneity, where we stand shoulder to shoulder with our ancestors and posterity, is appealing to me, given, uh, given contact, getting context and fuel to the work of social change. She went on to say, in that context, it's plausible to me that the generations of the future want to lend us courage for what we do. I imagine them saying, thank you for our efforts to keep mines from leaching into rivers and topsoil from blowing away. Thanks for our citizen campaigns on behalf of the seas. Thank you, ancestors, for working on renewable energy sources so that we may have some clean air to breathe. I suppose there is a lot to thank the generations that came before us for the progress that's been made. But I also wonder about the rage of future generations about what we are not doing and what we are handing forward. I am hoping we can benefit from the wisdom of future generations. Our forecestors, it's a made up term, um, maybe all the wisdom is right here intact and that, and that, as Joanna Macy says, the time is just a construct. Nevertheless, the actions we take today really matter. Our forecestors would certainly have a useful perspective on this. I think consideration for future being strikes me as the most important lens through which to view the choices we make today. This is particularly true as we live the Bodhisattva vows. We vow to save all beings present and future. The transmission of wisdom is really all about the future. Isn't that the point? In Zazen, when I am close to this topic, I imagine the wisdom of my ancestors, biological and Buddhist, coming from my left. From my right, the wisdom of my ancestors comes to me too. And I am in the middle, receiving that wisdom in the present. With all that, I can try and answer the question Benjamin Franklin was fond of asking, what good shall I do this day? I start with intention. Like many, I get battered around by the reality of life and the complexity, challenge, and inconsistency of being a human in community with other imperfect human specimens. The pulse of wisdom sometimes intervenes and I get through it. Sometimes more than that, I thrive and flourish. At other times, the pulse is too faint or I can't access it at all and I kind of crash. In either case, I get back on the cushion. 
you tune in again. That's what I have for you this evening, and um, would love to hear any reactions you have, or um, certainly to benefit from all your wise souls. <laughs>